Join me in standing out of reverence and honor for the Word of God. As we have said, we are continuing on with our sermon series through the Psalms of Ascent. And our psalm for this morning will be Psalm 129, 129th Psalm. And these are the words of the one and only God. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, indeed you are the righteous God from all eternity and unto all eternity. And you have revealed yourself to us in your word in Psalm 129. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that we might increase in the knowledge of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it seems that Frederick the Great, king of Prussia, had read just one too many of the wrong books because he was beginning to have his doubts as to the existence of God. And so he went to one of his most trusted advisors and he demanded rather anxiously proof for the existence of God. And to make it all the more challenging, Frederick said, look, I don't want a long-winded, sophisticated argument. I don't want a bunch of syllogisms. Just give me proof of God's existence in but one word, one phrase. This rather sharp advisor thought about it for a moment and simply replied, Your Majesty, the Jews. And you could see what the advisor was getting at. And that was that the only possible explanation for the perseverance, the endurance of this obscure people against all odds, amidst all persecution, is none other than the existence of God. That if every enemy of the Jews has been wiped out, and yet they endured, let the record show that the only explanation is none other than God. And there's a sense in which the advisor could have equally answered Frederick the Great by simply saying, Your Majesty, the 129th Psalm. Because it is this psalm that so wonderfully unfolds not only the gravity 
of Israel's persecutions, but even more so the great faithfulness of her God. And so as we've often done with these psalms, we'll spend some time looking backwards at Israel's afflictions and God's deliverance, and then some time looking forward in anticipation. And so we'll look at Israel's affliction in verses 1 through 3, and then look at Israel's anticipation in verses 5 through 8. And you'd be correct to say, wait a minute, preacher man, where did verse 4 go? What about verse 4? And indeed, that is the mountain peak that this psalm builds to. It is the very heartbeat of this psalm and our main point to consider this morning, and that is that our God is righteous. So before verse 1, let's briefly set the background of this psalm, because as you'll soon see, this is a heavy, heavy song, saturated with grief and pain. And undoubtedly, if you happen to hear an Israelite singing these verses on his pilgrim ascent, you'd want to know, what has got this poor Israelite so sad, so dejected? And so the context is quite helpful, as commentators believe that this psalm is set during the captivity of Israel by one of her main enemies, the nation of Assyria, that came and conquered her in one of the darkest days of her history. And so just put yourself in the shoes of that captive Israelite. When something like that happens, no doubt, questions start to pop into your mind. Questions like, is God who he says he is? Will God's precious promises come to pass? Will God maintain our cause against the enemy? It is, after all, in the furnace of affliction that those questions burn the deepest. And so, verse 1 begins in exactly that tone as it reads, Greatly, or as King James says, Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth. You see, these afflictions are not sporadic. They're not light. They are long and deep. And this phrase, from my youth, is a call for Israel to remember her history, that history. And of course, they don't have to look back very far, do they? They can look back to their time in Egypt and how from day one, they are born into this cradle of adversity under Pharaoh's oppressive regime. And that is just the beginning. If it's not Egypt, it's Canaan or Assyrian or the Chaldeans or the Hittites or the Moabites and on and on we go. That Israel is born under trouble as the sparks fly upwards. In the same way, we must never forget that the history of the church is no different. That it is the story of reviling and scourging and burning and terrorizing and ultimately martyrdom. That church history could just as easily be relabeled as the history of hurting. As Paul says, all the day long we are sheep to be slaughtered. And students, you in particular need to see that your youth is not your shield. Do not be deceived into thinking that your enemy will come for you only when you are a mature soldier, only when you are old enough to enlist in the army. Your enemy does not play by the rules of a just war, and so the time is now to train your hands for battle, to train your fingers for spiritual warfare. Now, just for added intensity, for the dull hearer, 
In case he doesn't get it, the psalmist repeats the exact same phrase in verse 2. Many are these afflictions. Now notice also the intensely personal nature of these afflictions, described in both verses 1 and 2 as towards me, the individual, the I, and yet the psalmist also says, hey, let's have the whole congregation join in. Let all Israel say. And why is that? Well, you might remember, maybe by way of analogy, when Saul was persecuting the church at large in the book of Acts, Christ appears to Saul, and what does Christ say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, why does Jesus say me and not them? Because it speaks to the reality, doesn't it? That so knit together are the people of God in Christ that to persecute one of us is to persecute all of us and is ultimately an attack upon God himself. Indeed, one of the great perils of persecution is that of isolation, of suffering alone, disconnected. And if that is you this morning, friend, know you are joined to a body, grafted into a covenant family with those who will weep alongside you when you are weeping. Now, before we move on, let's just pause and ask for a minute, well, what is the point of all this looking backwards? I can almost hear the modern man saying, hey, quit dwelling in the past, man. Quit looking backwards. It's time to move forwards. Why drum up such a gloomy history? Well, you see why. In verse 2, as that glorious conjunction yet leaps off the page, as in we're oppressed yet, though we're persecuted yet, try as they may to destroy us, yet they have not prevailed against me. As Exodus says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Ah, now do you see why we're looking backwards? To recall that the only thing that outweighs the enemy's persecution is God's preservation. See, they could look back and trace generations of God's faithfulness to them. Just imagine these conversations on this journey. Hey, kids, do you remember that time? We were attacked. Remember the time we were ambushed. Remember the time all the odds were stacked against us. And yet what? If the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed up alive. And I wonder if you have ever taken a look back in the rearview mirror of your life, your family, generations prior to you, and see, oh, that's where the enemy bore down on me, on us. And yet I can see the Lord's faithfulness. I can truly say, no weapon formed against us prospered. In verse 3, he doubles down. He wants you to know it in your bones. You see, the enemy's weapon of choice in, in this verse was a mower of sorts. This graphic imagery, plowers who plowed upon his backside. These are not superficial cuts. This is severe. It reads, they made long their furrows. Persecution, if it's persecution, cuts deep. Cuts into the heart of man. It lacerates the soul. We say this kind of thing all the time in our modern day. We say, his soul is wounded. Her heart is bruised. She was mowed over in that conflict. I trust you know that your present day enemy is no less full of fury. There is no busier plowman than Satan. 
whose desire for you is that you would be sifted in his sieve of destruction. And so ask yourself, could you take up the very same confidence as the psalmist? That if I am plowed over, evil will not prevail. Though I'm mowed over this day, this week, this month, this decade, yet I know it will not prevail over me. And if you need more persuasion, don't worry, the psalmist gives us exactly that. Because so far the psalmist has taken our head and turned it backward. And now as if before the psalmist is going to take our head and turn it forward, the psalmist pauses for a minute and says, friend, take your head and look upward at what is the summit truth of this psalm. Because we climb to this peak that you see in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. If Frederick the Great says, give it to me in one sentence, what is the psalmist's great hope amidst affliction? What is your great hope amidst affliction? Why is it that all these causes of cruelty fall to the ground? Please tell me you're not hanging your hopes on some empty delusion, that you've got a rock-solid truth. Verse 4 sums it up perfectly. The Lord is righteous. See, to proclaim that the Lord is righteous is firstly to say something as to who God is. His very essence. His unchanging character. This is not saying that God performs righteous works, though that is, of course, true. Verse 4 will soon say that. But even more foundationally, verse 4 declares that God in and of himself as a divine perfection from all eternity is always right and good and just. God never needs to look outside of himself for the standard of righteousness, to discover righteousness, to learn righteousness. No, God can say something that no one else can say. My own righteousness will sustain me. And from that foundational truth, everything else follows. And that is the truth for you, Christian, that should spark unreserved trust and adoration. As in, well, why good? Why would God deliver us? And give me justice. Answer, because he is righteous. Well, how can I be sure God would keep his precious promises to me? Answer, because he is righteous. Well, how can I have confidence that, yes, I might be struck down, but not destroyed. I might be persecuted, but not forsaken. Answer, because the Lord is righteous. And you see, as verse 4 continues, it follows that exact logic. From the, foundation, from the foundational truth that the Lord is righteous, you see it put in motion. Namely, by cutting the cords of the wicked. This imagery of cords is being entrapped, entangled. Kids, you might remember that the great Samson was bound in cords by his enemies. Now kids, how did Samson break free of those cords? Did he use scissors or a knife? Or maybe, kids, he got a friendly mouse to come and nibble through those cords. What happened? No, of course not. Samson just flexes his biceps, right? And those cords just spring off his arms. And why? Because God temporarily raised up Samson to be this 
deliverer until the true deliverer would come. So do you see the power of God over the cords of evil? Oh, how man is entrapped by the cords of sin, not having the strength of Samson. When we're caught in our addictions, enslaved to lust, in bondage to anxiety and worry, entrapped by an inexhaustible, unshakable love of money, and such is our corruption that man's striving only tightens those cords tighter and tighter tighter, like a boa constrictor upon its victim. And in that condition, to God alone, belongs the sole honor of cutting the cords of the wicked. And so there is a word on the first half of this psalm and the afflictions of God's people. And we can already see how we're reading but a short biography of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he too could look back and say, from my youth, greatly was I afflicted. That as Revelation 12 says, the moment he comes forth from the womb, Satan pursues him murderously to destroy him. And as he grows, so grows his opponents. As Isaiah tells of the one who would come, who would give his back to those who strike. And yet what did he do? but fully entrust, fully deposit himself to his Father who judges justly. And he knew by faith that though I give my back, I know, I know I will not be put to shame. And such expectation is right where we're going in the second half of this psalm. And you'll notice now a shift that instead of looking at the persecuted, now we look at the fate of the persecutors. And you see it right away in verse 5 as it reads, May all who hate Zion be put to shame. Now this verse and the verse that follow are the kind of verses that make modern evangelicals squeamish. Because it seems, for, well, for lack of a better word, it seems uh, mean-spirited. It seems harsh, lacking in the grace and mercy of the New Testament. Aren't I supposed to love my enemies? But there are at least a few reasons why we can and must take up these kind of verses without hesitation. Firstly, these are not petty, vindictive pleas. This is an appeal of faith. And to be clear, if you go the route of petty, vindictive pleas to settle your own personal vendettas, then God will not honor it. Secondly, this is not an Old Testament thing. It is not the case that the New Testament puts off this kind of language. Paul, for instance, names by name those who oppose them and then says, I know that the Lord will repay them. Paul signs off his letter to the Corinthians saying, everyone who does not have love for the Lord, let them be accursed. And thirdly, Preeminently, it brings amazing honor to God. The Lord is righteous. Translation, the Lord will smash evil as though a potter's vessel. And he will vindicate his people for his name's sake. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. And he said, we all too often 
cry out for an effeminate God in whom pity has strangled justice. But we must praise God in all the aspects of his character, whether terrible or tender. As you begin to grasp that, you can see and pray the kind of prayers in verses 6 and 7, for instance. Let the wicked be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, so insubstantial that the reaper does not fill his hand. The houses in Judea were, were flat, and so after a rain, occasionally grass would, would sprout up. But of course, having no soil, having no root, that grass would quickly wither and was not worth the time to be harvested. And the psalmist says, so to the enemy. And you see the great irony, the ones in verse 3 who plow over the people of God as if their mere grass is now reversed. And they are the ones truly fleeting like grass in verse 6. It reminds us, doesn't it, of what a blessing it is to be rooted in Jesus Christ. And that the Christian, though dying, rooted in Christ, is able to produce a lasting harvest. And the final woe, verse 8. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of of the Lord. You might remember the story from Ruth that as Boaz, the righteous man, as he would walk along the fields, he would give this kind of greeting. And of course, Boaz was not simply saying good morning, top of the morning to you, or anything trivial like that. Boaz was saying, may the favor of the living God rest upon you. May God's face shine upon you. And the psalmist says, such words are never to be spoken under the wicked. As Revelation foretells, the inevitable curse that comes upon Babylon with the simple explanation, it is what they deserve. And so you see in the second half of this psalm from the foundational truth that the Lord is righteous, it anticipates that all those who oppose God will be put to shame. And so if you're here this morning, you would not say that Christ is Lord. Hear the witness of this psalm as to just how empty and futile and fleeting is life without Christ. That such are put to shame, turned backward. If you've ever wondered out loud to yourself, man, sometimes it just all kind of seems empty. Friend, you're right. And those are truer words than you even realize. Friend, instead of facing Christ as the lion, you could have him today as the lamb who would cut your cords of wickedness and give you life everlasting. And so as we begin to close, let us lay up in our heart but three considerations, three meditations of this wondrous psalm of ascent. And we could do so in three simple words. Victory vengeance, and vindication. Firstly, victory. Now, victory may seem like an odd word choice. You might say, what psalm are you reading? The psalm I read is all about being plowed and afflicted. You see the victory, don't you? That though they are plowed over, the enemy does not prevail. And perhaps you're in a season of being plowed over. 
maybe mildly, a coworker who enjoys undermining your faith, continually snide remarks from a family member, or perhaps more severely, you have, in the true sense of the word, been a victim, the dark, sad history, one who has been the object of abuse and cruelty, that you feel like you too could look back and say, from my youth, greatly have I been afflicted, and there is no end in sight. And for us all, of course, life will bring the afflictions of hurt, of disease, of pain, and ultimately the sting of death. And friend, I do hope you behold the comfort of this psalm, that what evil intends for plowing, our great God intends for pruning. That with this psalm, I can declare to you with a straight face that those persecutions will not prevail over you. Indeed, you may be struck down, but not destroyed. You may be persecuted, but not forsaken. And so do not hold the revenge in your heart that so often turns to bitterness, resentment, anger, and know that you can come and cry the cries of Psalm 129. And know that you have a sympathetic high priest who knows the fullness of affliction and not a single tear will not be bottled up and accounted for. And so that leads us to our second word, the word vengeance. And let's clear away the connotation because if I say, hey, do you know so-and-so or do you know her? She's a very vengeful, vindictive person. That is, of course, an insult. But that is not the case with our great God. The vengeance of God speaks to the jealous, covenantal love of our God and what he does for his people. By way of analogy, I can't tell you how many mothers I know who have just the sweetest, mildest of dispositions. And then you just watch if their children are threatened or endangered. And what happens then to mom? Mom transforms into mama bear. And she will claw and fight and defend her children. And why? Petty vindictiveness? Not the least. It is because of her unfailing covenantal love for her children. And if that is the case with imperfect creatures... How much more so for our great God? God declares, vengeance is uniquely, solely mine. I will repay. And if you believe that, then you can, you can have the patient confidence of Psalm 129 that rests upon the rock-solid truth that the Lord is righteous. And lastly, finally, vindication. Well, Frederick the Great came to me and said, friend, I've got a follow-up question. You've persuaded me of the existence of God. But what I want now is I want definitive proof that this God of yours is righteous. And, as is my custom, I need you to give it to me in but one word, one phrase. 
I suppose I would have to reply, Your Majesty, the cross. The cross. For it is upon the cross we see that the deepest stroke that pierced him is not the stroke of man or Pharisees or Sadducees or Jews, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. That is at the cross that the righteousness of God pours forth the full vent, the full vent of the punishment unto sin, the full gravity of what it is to fall short of the glory of God. That he was not simply plowed over, but crushed for my iniquity and for your iniquity and pierced for my transgression and your transgression. And to use the language of this psalm, what next but that he was bound. He was bound by the greatest cord of all. That he is bound by the very cords of death. In dying the death of a condemned sinner. And then what? It is those cords of wickedness. It is those cords of evil that are cut, that are loosed, and never to be refastened again. For he is raised up by the power of an indestructible life and vindicated as the Son of God. Christian, are you reminded of just what good news that is to you this morning? That God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. So that you too could say, I know, I know that evil will not prevail over me because it did not prevail over my risen Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you that you indeed are the righteous God, that you have set your jealous love upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we as a righteous people, solely dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, can have the unswerving confidence that you are our God, that we are your people that you are our shepherd, that we are your sheep, and that you will not lose a single one of us. We pray that your word would dwell richly in our hearts, and that we would walk forth in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.